Welcome to the locker room where we break down sermons, stories, and scripture for the race of our faith. This is a big day for you, Rod. Uh, you too, Libby, but... This is a big day for the oh, state of baby. Michigan. We can, we can talk That's about fine. It. Yeah. Did you have fun RJ's last night? Pumped. Of course. <laughs> Were you nervous at all? Oh, of course I was nervous. <laughs> nervous until they are up 14 points. Yep. In yeah, the fourth the, quarter. They almost came back in the third. Oh, yeah. I felt... I, I mean, I actually thought they were going to lose. Yeah, did you or not? Did anyone else? I didn't because I, I'm not a Michigan fan, so I didn't have to guard my heart by right. thinking they were going to lose. Is that kind of how it's you guard your heart It's just typically how it goes for Michigan. When, when they <laughs> they get, get the, close. <laughs> they get really close sometimes, and then they just break your heart. It's so, so They didn't do it last night. That's amazing. Harbaugh gone? Probably. But at the same time, it doesn't matter. Thought I saw he still somewhere. loves Michigan. Didn't, didn't he have a ten-year extension offered, or did I? Was oh, that a rumor? He has a big-time extension. Right. Yeah. Well, Sparty, we hope you get better too. Hey, it's time to lay an idol down. Talk about more important things. Yeah. Well, I've been laying down the idol of Minnesota sports for the thirty years I've been on this planet. They're awful every year. Yeah, what I've always said, though, is that idols are shattered through losses. <laughs> hey, losses are actually really good for an idol. I've taken Wins a lot are of, terrible for an idol. I've taken a <laughs> lot of L's. <laughs> taken a lot of L's as a Minnesota sports fan. Um, I will say, though, in the, in the interview afterwards, because I watched some of them, mm-hmm. and as a fan, I've just known that this team has had success because of the culture that's created. And cre- a culture is so important to a team. Everyone looks at like how much talent yeah. do they have and you know, who are their star players. But what you saw in Michigan this year, there really weren't any real star players oh, I know. or star power, which is why everyone really thought up until the end that nope, Washington's going to win. Bama's going to win. Ohio state's going to win. Cause they all have star players, but culture won. It's actually beautiful. I'm not even a Michigan fan, and obviously I'm in the Big Ten being a Gopher fan, so I have no reason to love Michigan. But it is beautiful contrast, I think, to the way that college sports is going. It really felt like a team's team. Uh, when you watched Michigan, there was that beautiful, cohesive culture, especially in the age of NIL, which I'm not opposed to. I think the players should be paid and transfer portal. Hey, it's your life. You know, Go find a place to actually play and succeed, and I'm all for that. But it's become very individualistic, yeah, you know, and exactly. it's turning into chaos and everyone's kind of out to, to get theirs while the, the, the getting's good, which again, I don't blame these players because for many years, everyone's been making money off of all of their hard work. So I get it. But at the same time, it was beautiful to, as a football purist, to watch a team that you could tell was a team first. And, uh, yeah. So Libby and I were watching the interviews and Libby actually mm-hmm. said, did you just hear what that player said? Or what Jim Harbaugh said? Right. And w- what was it again, Lib? He said, we just go into the battlefield slash football stadium arm in arm, knowing that everyone's got each other's back. Like, without a doubt, we just look to our left and our right, and we know that we've got each other's backs. And then the second thing he said was, there's never anyone that says, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? They're all just like united as a team. Yeah. And I know that as a coach, you know, if, if you have players in the team that are like, why do, why do we have to do this? 
Mm-hmm. It just works against the culture. But when you have people that are all in and excited to go, and culture wins. It really does. Yeah. Culture does win. I, I had the privilege of playing for um, Coach Mike Swider, and he's probably one of the most world-class culture builders I've ever been around. And it takes it takes a long time to build culture. It doesn't just yep. happen overnight. And uh, there's an interesting culture going on in the story that we find ourselves in in Genesis. Wonderful transition. No, but I'm serious. You talk about culture. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so sure. we're introduced to this story of Abraham, <clears throat> Abraham and Lot this week, um, which is fascinating to me because Lot's always been there, but he's not mentioned until just now because it says he's with he's been with Abraham. So they obviously have this relationship. And uh, this story has become more and more fascinating to me. And like I've said before, like if you've read Genesis before, some of these little details you can almost miss. And the first thing that I want to start off by talking about is the paradoxical mixture of self-reliance and faith in the life of Abram. Mm-hmm. He gets up from Ur and he walks by faith. And then he finds himself in Egypt and he's a colossal failure. But then he comes back to Bethel and he recommits his faith to the Lord. And then he comes to the situation with Lot and it's very obvious that he's walking in faith again. And what is it that makes this story so beautiful when we talk about just understanding our humanity as people that both have really high mountaintop moments where we're following the Lord in faith, but then we also have these moments of colossal failure where we fall back into self-trust and take control of the reins of our own life. Yeah, I would say first, faith is a journey. It's not a performance. It's a journey. And this is something that's helped me with my own life, but also when I look at other people like I'm on a journey. Everybody's on their own journey. And faith itself is a journey. And what we see early on with Abram is his journey looks amazing. His faith looks amazing. And then as amazing as it looks, it looks unbelievably disappointing. All of a sudden there's famine. He lacks faith. He goes to the place where he knows he can get food. Then he starts, wow, I got a beautiful wife. I got to make sure that, you know, Pharaoh doesn't take notice of her and cause harm to me so he concocts this whole story and all of a sudden he's in a place of non-faith but it's the journey that he's on and in in this place he totally fails like he fails in his faith he fails in his walk with God he's a failure and yet by the time you get to chapter 13 we see that he's a changed man and a lot of his transformation and change is because of his failure. And again, failure too is a part of our journey. Yeah. But how do you respond to failure? How do you respond when all of a sudden your life gets off track and you go to Egypt and you've become self-reliant and corrupt and far from God? And that's where we see Abram. It's like, I'm going back to God. I'm returning to the house of God where I encountered him, where I know this God and I know he's real and I know his promises are real and I'm getting out of Egypt right now. And it's like he retraces his steps 
goes right back to that place. I think he does it in silence as a broken man. Yeah. He can't wait to get back to Bethel, he can't house wait. of God, to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, and he's really specific as to where he goes because I looked this up because um, I was curious about it, but to go from Egypt to Bethel is 255 miles. So he doesn't just get content to stay in the, get, the Negev, which is the southern part of Israel or the promised land, which borders Egypt. He could have just crossed over into promised land. He wants to go back to that specific spot um, where his heart put a straight stake in the ground earlier. And he, he's willing to walk 255 miles to get there. Mm-hmm. It's important to him. Yeah. And it's shocking to me because I think my temptation, if I would have, and I've, Believe me, I've had my fair share of failures, but like the specific type of failure that Abram had would be to wallow in self-pity and just let it take me out, take me out of the game, you know? And I was actually talking to one of our elders yesterday over breakfast, uh, elders at Crossroads, and he was talking about just having a conversation with his wife that turned into a little bit of a blow up and how his temptation after he has these failures is to let the enemy come in, allow himself to wallow in self-pity uh, essentially self-flagellate himself with self-talk about how, how crappy he is and how he's failed so miserably as like almost a form of self-flagellation to show God how repentant he is, but it's really just rooted in pride because he doesn't, in those moments, he isn't receiving the grace and mercy of God. And so for me, Abram's story, um, and we talked about how how we all work through that in some ways, like Self-pity is just another form of pride, but Abram doesn't wallow in self-pity. Instead, he remembers the promise and he walks again back into uh, God's plans for his life. And so, I don't know, I'm just so encouraged by this story in so many ways because... There's also, too, a lot of undertones in that story, in that narrative, where we almost forget about Sarai. Hmm. It's not hard to deduct that her going into Pharaoh's palace as a wife to Pharaoh. Yeah. Um, Think about the conversations that were had between Sarah and Abram. And did Abram even want to know? And this is just one of those situations where you choose to sin, you do suffer, you know, and the suffering that this brought upon Abraham do you see what I'm trying to get at right here? Like, it's not just, oh, I, my life got off track. No, yeah. But the consequences of his life getting off track, starting with his marriage. Yeah. And, like, now all of a sudden, like, having to, like, bring healing. Exactly. All of that. And the trust being probably totally shattered between both of them and having to restore all of that. But they're doing it. They're both returning. Exactly. Wounded, too. And that's just where the story is captivating to me because it deals with the realities of life, you know, um, there, he probably still has some <laughs> deep regret, um, but he's got to keep living. Yep. And <clears throat> so he moves and then we find ourselves in this story of him and lot. And one of the things that I loved on Sunday that you said, Rod, is sometimes a Hebrew word alone can captivate our imagination if we understand what it is. And for you, it was the word that we translate heavy. Mm -hmm. What is this Hebrew word and what is its significance? 
in Ka- this passage. Kavad. And there's other forms of the word kavad. There's also kavod. Kavod means glory. Mm-hmm. But glory too means weight. It's the weight of glory. But this is kavad, which means the glory of riches. But again, means heavy, burdensome. And so it's just the Bible's way of saying the effects of money, the effects of having a lot. It's a burden. It's a heavy burden. Yeah, and what's interesting to me in the text is that when it says that the the famine was severe in chapter 12, it's the same word as uh, now Abram was very rich in livestock and in gold in chapter 13. And I think that that's intentional, like you said. Yes. The famine was heavy. Now he has another form of heavy. Exactly. Yes, and we oftentimes think of those two things as opposites, famine and riches, Uh, but both of them are very heavy. Yeah, so, because we think, a lot of times I think that if we have wealth, it would actually lighten the load in our life, right? But that's not always the case, is it? Look how happy rich people are. (laughs) They are so happy. Look at our celebrities, how happy they are. Or just America in general. I know, look how happy our culture is. Richest culture in the world. Maybe one of the most depressed cultures. No, it, at least melancholy is running rampant these days. It's up there. I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but when Rod brought up the text in Ezekiel, the root of Sodom's sin is that they're arrogant, overfed, like they're bored basically because they have so much and they have so much pride. And that leads to the fruit of that root. Is, and that's the detestable things Ezekiel says yeah. that they did. But I think it's rooted in, the, if you think in the ancient world, the cities are the places of wealth, the cities are the places of commerce, the cities are the places where the rich can dwell within the walls and be safe. And so um, the commentary that God does on Sodom is that they're rich, lazy, overfed, like they have too much. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of why we find ourselves in the craziness and chaos of our culture right now, where you think about all of the most abnormal and disturbing problems that we find ourselves in when it comes to just our obsession with identity, sexuality, um, the things that our academic institutions are turning into. It's almost like we've had so much time in comfort of twiddling our thumbs that we're creating problems because we haven't had any real problems, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like to me. And so in a lot of ways, that's kind of where this story is going. There's not really a problem here. Abram and Lot have so much. They're both super wealthy. Abram has uh, tons of gold and silver. He's got camels. He's got female donkeys, which were both these enormous status symbols. Female donkeys were what would literally carry the uber rich. Camels mm-hmm. were a symbol of the uber rich, and he's got tons of them. And then he's got silver. And, and where did he get it? a lot of it? Egypt. In Egypt from Pharaoh exactly. himself. So he's coming home with all of that. But you know what I mean? There's a, there's a, they're almost creating a problem that doesn't exist. It's like when I yeah. read this, I'm like, what's the problem here? And I said this before we started the the podcast, but I like get this picture of Yellowstone. If you've ever seen that TV, the Dutton Ranch, they've got all this land, they have all this wealth, but they're constantly, I've only seen a few episodes, but I know what 
in general it's about. They have the whole show is based off of this premise that because they are so rich, they basically their whole life is about protecting these riches and figuring out how to manipulate the land and protect it. And that's what it feels like here with Abram and Lot to me, you know? It's a heavy life. And that's what they're dealing with. And all of a sudden, you get the sense too in 13.1, just even how it reads, is that there's distance between Abraham and Lot. That they went down to Egypt together, but now they're coming back and there's a little more separation. And I think a lot of that has to do probably with the wealth. And then, of course, it manifests itself in the rest of 13 and the conflict that ensues that they have to deal with. Yeah, so what is that conflict and what happens between them? Well, they never really get in the land at this point. The promised land is something that they're still on the fringes of because there are Canaanites there. And so it's not like they have the whole promised land to share. It's the fringes. And yet the fringes still are more than enough. And yet they have so much that it's not enough. And so therefore, all of a sudden, conflict ensues. And now who's going to win? Is Lot going to win? Is Abram going to win? And this is where we see that Abram's a changed man. Yeah. It makes he has all the power in this situation. He, he, he has the power to call the shots. He has the power to say, Lot, that's your little piece of land over there. Um, I'm taking this big piece of land here. You know, keep your mouth shut. Be happy. You know, do totally. what I say. Stay in your corner. Yes, go stay in your corner. It's it's yeah. such a contrast to me. Yeah. To like even the Cain and Abel story. Like, am I brother? Am I my brother's keeper? And like Abram is basically answering the bell and saying, "Yeah, like Lot's family." And yes, I am his keeper. Yeah. Well, I think Abram's already so changed that even the wealth that he has. Uh, means very little to him. Yeah. And part of it is how, probably even how he got it. He probably is sick to his stomach a little bit, how he became wealthy. Look at what he had to give up, you know, and that whole narrative with his wife to Pharaoh. So I think he's just totally set free. And I think he's a little bit, you know, disgusted by it. Um, but he's definitely in a selfless state. Like, okay, yeah. Lot, I'll let you go first. And Lot doesn't even want either option. He doesn't even want to be a part of the promised land because there's a better piece of land. This is literally the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And there it is. And I'm taking it. It doesn't matter what you say to me, Abram. I'm leaving you. Yeah. And two times it says in the text that he departed Abram. The word there is close to divorce. There's a, there's a divorce that's taking place. He's divorcing his heart, his life from Abram. And Abram knows it. Yeah. Which is why God encourages him and says, look, Abram, it's going to be okay. I'm going to talk to you right now. Look at that promised land and don't give up hope. Don't give up faith. I am with you. And those promises are sure. Well, and I think it shows Abram's faith, actually, because if we look at the storyline, he left to go to Egypt because of famine, because the land wasn't providing for him. And so he decided to take matters in his own hands which he does, is going to continue to do throughout the whole story several times. 
and goes down to Egypt to get food. And now it's almost like he's back in the promised land and the land can't sustain both parties. They have too much. Basically, we're talking about pasture land here. They're, yeah. they're, their sheep don't have anywhere to graze because they're overlapping each other and there's not enough. Yeah. And instead of Abram at this point calculating like an accountant, well, I need X amount of acres for my sheep to make sure we have enough food. Abram's exposing a whole different mindset where he's like, I, it doesn't really matter where I go, like God's going to provide. Yeah. Like, I feel like his whole mindset has changed. Like, I don't need a certain plot of land. I don't, I mean, God can provide wherever. And I'm going to trust him in that because he's given me all yeah. of this. Whereas lots specifically, like, where can I go where I can maintain a prosperous life? And he's looking at the land to provide. Actually, the plains of Jordan, the land is what's going to provide for me. And I think Abraham's Abram's focus has shifted and he's now looking at God and saying, you're going to provide for me wherever I am. I'm not reliant on a river or a well-watered plain. I'm going to look up, like you said in the sermon, Rod. But that's what God promises about the promised land, that you're going to have to look up and trust me, and mm-hmm. I'm going to provide the rain. And Abram, now in his faithfulness, is actually living into that. He doesn't have this mental concept of propositional faith. He's actually being faithful, full of faith in how he acts. And he's living that out. So one of the surprising things that I learned about the land, because I know this land very well. I know how the story and the land work together. Abram at this time, he's very wealthy, but he's a Bedouin. What's he's, a Bedouin? A Bedouin is someone who is it's a shepherd. I mean, in our mind, it's, it's someone who has a ton of sheep and goats. And they're it, nomadic. And they live nomadic lifestyle. Okay. And, and the desert is where the nomad, nomad lives. That's where they do life. So when, when Abram's saying, do you want this land or this land? He's saying, do you want this piece of the desert or this piece of the desert? And what Lot sees is that I, I don't want the desert anymore. I don't even want this lifestyle anymore. Mm-hmm. He wants the city. Yeah. He wants to give up being a Bedouin for city life. And he sees the city. He sees the green pastures, literally. He sees Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, that's where I want to get. And that's where he will get. He just incrementally his eyes first see it he's seduced mm-hmm. well it even happens before that he experienced it in egypt and he comes back from egypt infected with egypt it's like i want egypt again mm-hmm. he looked at that plane and saw "Ooh, that's like egypt i want that and and then incrementally his life follows his eyes until he's all the way in the city and then what do you do in a city it's all about climbing to the top, making a name for yourself. He makes it to the very top. I absolutely believe the commentaries. I think he became the mayor of Sodom. Yeah, and then the question becomes, like, what is it about human beings that even though we know the destruction of these types of rat races that we get ourselves in, like, we're aware of the consequences. We look at out into the world that's some of the most hyper successful people in our culture and we think to ourselves well I don't want that life I can see the burnout I can see why is it that we continue to chase it seriously I mean here we're 13 chapters in it was already in your chapter with Babel as well yeah it the Bible's already warning us like you think that life is in Babel 
You think that life is in Sodom. You think life is about making a name for yourself. You think life is about climbing to the top. And God is just like warning us, no, it isn't. Life is actually about Bethel, hmm. about building altars and and seeking my name. Yeah. And there's a forsaking that also is a part of that. It's not a both and it's either. A, yeah. But the message of our culture, but I'm not even talking the world out there. I'm talking about the world within the church yeah. even is like, okay, be a Christian, have this belief system, but go make it in the world. Go make a name for have yourself. Yeah. Have one foot in Sodom and one foot in promised land. Yes. And the, I think the Bible right here is telling us we have Either to or. radically, we have to radically forsake that. Do you know why I think uh, Abram is willing to give Lot the choice? Because I think he, like you said, he's been transformed. And I think he so trusts the promise of God that he knows even if he gave away the land a thousand times over, God's still giving it to his descendants. Right. So I think he's actually legitimately just trusting. He's like, take I whatever. Can, yeah, take whatever you want. Like, this is our land. My descendants. Well, are, I want you to even yeah. go further than that. Okay. Lot is his descendant. Well, yeah. That, <laughs> so in his mind, probably, this yeah. is the promised son. Yeah. I'm 75 years old. <laughs> this is my son through whom God's going to make a great family out of me and a great people and a great nation and make my name great and someday through whom the promised son will come. Okay, so let's take it even further because you think about, that also shows me another thing about Abram that he's unconcerned about, although his name will be made great, he's unconcerned about his personal name because Lot's his descendant. So even if Lot gets kind of the credit, and I, I'm just thinking about this because you said it's in, this this mindset of Babylon climbing the ladder is also mm -hmm. infected in the church. We're infected in the church, and I look at the Western Church, and you know, you just think like, would you be willing to give up something of great value or to somebody else where their name is made great mm. and not your own for the sake of the gospel? Or do we want the gospel, but we also want our name to be made great? Does that make sense? Like Abram is willing to say, hey, Lot, you can have this because ultimately it's about God's promise. It's not about me being the big guy on campus, right? Yeah, I mean. Does that make sense? It needs to make sense. We need to be very aware of what you're talking about right now. We live in the United States of America. We live in the place in the world where it screamed at us from the time we are just little. Be great. Make a great name for yourself. Climb the ladder. Make it to the top. Be successful. Make a good life. Oh, not even make a good life, but then promote your life and show off your life on social media. That's a, Our country is more unique in this than any country in the world. And if we're not aware of where we live and then how this can infect, yep. we, then it's already game over. Totally. And we have to be aware of that because that's what's happening with Sodom. Sodom's bleeding out into the pasture lands and luring Lot in. And <laughs> this is what the, the bad parts in a lot of ways of Western culture, it's almost leaking out of the West and finding its home in other places. Again, I'm not, we're all broken, every right. human being. So I'm not saying that we got our own problems, but it is kind of leaking out of the West and we're finding it. You were just talking about on the last podcast, like the same stuff's going on in Ukraine mm -hmm. that's going on here now. You yeah. Know? Well, and I think we're just reluctant as 
believers even, to maybe admit or accept the fact that from an earthly perspective, God's land is not the choicest land. Like, help me, help me, go with me here. Yeah. When Abraham and Lot, Lot looks and sees that this land is the choicest land. It looks like Egypt. It looks like Eden. But Abraham is willing to say, I don't care what it looks like. That's not God's promised land. Like Abraham's willing to even, Abram, sorry, I keep fast forwarding in his name. He's willing to stay in the desert, in the wilderness, because that's where God is. Mm -hmm. And that's where God's promised land is. And I think this flies in the face of a few things. This this mindset that Abram has, it flies in the face of prosperity gospel. Like prosperity gospel would say, definitely God's spot for you is the choicest land. It also flies in the face of American rugged individualism. Like, don't be dumb. Don't stay in the desert when you could just walk over there where it's easy and beautiful. It, it just flies in the face of our mindsets as, like you said, it creeps in even to Christianity. Like, that prosperity gospel, God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, you know, all those things. And and Abram has the maturity to say, I'm trusting in God. And he's going to say later in the text, I'm going to look up to him. And even if God's promises are contingent on where I am in the desert, then I'm willing to actually just stay. I'm just going to stay yeah. in the desert. Yeah, it reminds me of... Uh illustration that Tyler Statton in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, talks about God's sovereignty and our participation in his sovereignty. And he talks about how, you know, God's sovereignty and his movement in the world is like the Mississippi River. And you can get into that river and you can try to flail and kick and scream and swim upstream. But whether you like it or not, God's plan is still going to sweep you down that river. Or you can get in, carried along by God's sovereignty, and swim with the current and realize ultimately it's not dependent on me, but I'm going to be a participant in God's plan and I'm going to flow with it. And I just think that it's a great illustration because I feel like that's where Abram has got. He's he's spent some time swimming against the current yep. and he's back to saying, Lord, I'm just going to let you yes. carry this thing. And there's well, ultimate freedom in that. I know. Totally. And you often say, Rod, that you said this on Sunday, what makes Eden Eden is the presence of God. It's not that there was beautiful trees and plants, and it's the presence of God that made Eden have the power that it had to the human soul, which was peace and rest, is God's presence. And so Abram is living into this. Like Eden is actually not necessarily something that's beautiful to the eye. Eden is actually right here. And you've even said it um, in Israel at times that to Israel, the Israelites, the desert became Eden because of God's presence. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. When Moses writes in verse 12, Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's trying to evoke a like almost a little bit of a, oh gosh, like he's right there? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Is there like, are we supposed to be sitting on the edge of our seat? Like, is he going to go in? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, fully. oh my goodness, he's okay. He got his eyes set on it. Now he's getting close. Okay. It's like. <laughs> but he's not there yet. No, it's like he's at the edge of the cliff. Well, it, that's how we all are. I mean, I think you, you talked about this on Sunday. 
you're just what are you willing to flirt with like you kind of like to say to yourself i'm not fully in i'm not fully in sodom but you're, you're right next to it yeah and i'm sure okay so we're wondering this imagine abram <laughs> he's watching this and he's probably like what do you think he's doing I think he's like lots on his journey. And where's this journey going to take him? And I think he's also as badly as he wants to rescue him. He's probably thinking lots going to have to make the choice here. And if it means he's going to go all the way in, because so someone asked me this on Sunday, like why didn't Abram go and say, grab him by the ear and say, you're coming over here. And my answer to that person was, why didn't, in the parable of the prodigal, the father do the same? Why did he let the son just go and, and waste all his money, waste his life, go to this low, low place of destruction? And this is who God is. Like, God looks at us, and he knows that we're on this journey. And at the end of the day, he does want us to choose him, and he's not going to force that choice. And I also think that, like with Abram, Abram just realized failure made Abram. It made him. Abram's faith isn't great in chapter 13 in spite of failure. It's because of failure that his faith now is that much greater. And I think Abram's probably applying the same thing to Lot. Okay, Lot's getting his life off track, just like me. Oh, he's going further, further off track. Oh, he's getting closer. Okay, this failure, this great failure might just really make him into a great man. But this is where failure, there's nothing automatic with it. It can either make us um, into greatness or it can make us into nothingness. And break us. It can waste. It make a waste of our life. Or as you always say, can make us bitter, can make us better. Yeah. Well, with Abram, um, you just see that he is totally changed, like you've mentioned so many times. And, and the failure is what makes him become this great, great man and this great man of faith. But Lot, we've mentioned this, is still attracted to Egypt. Like he did not learn the same lesson that Abram learned, or at least he didn't respond in his heart the same way that Abram did. I think it's really interesting if we think back um, about who's writing this, who's writing Genesis is Moses. And Moses says that to Lot, it looked like Egypt. And Moses is very familiar with Egypt himself. Like Moses is familiar with the bondage and the, that God's people have been brought out of Egypt. Yeah. And so when he says that Lot, it looked like Egypt to Lot, I think Moses is even affirming that this is a snag and a snare and a bondage for Lot. And Lot isn't turning from it like Abram did. Like his heart just isn't responding the same way. Like where Abram's like, no, I'm not going there again. I've learned my lesson. Lot is just entangled, entangled. And even Moses comments that it looked like Egypt. Yeah. There's a lot of baggage for already in the text attached to Egypt. Can I take a little right turn? Because I want to ask you a question as parents. Mm. Going back to a theme that you were drawing out earlier, like why doesn't Abram just grab Lot by the ear? Yeah. 
I know there's a lot of people. I mean, we just had 24-7 prayer. I'm looking at prayers on the wall. We had mm. worship night. The amount of times that people are like praying, Lord, please save X person in my family. Yeah. And I know that at times it's like, how do we actually participate in the lives of people that are heading towards Sodom mm. and living outside of God's promise? And then the intensity of that anxiety and angst can only increase when it's our own family, let alone our own children. My kids aren't old enough to be outside of the house. How would you counsel somebody? Like, what does it look like to live into your faith when someone near and dear to you is walking towards Sodom? They're walking to the east, east of God's plans of their life, away from him. Mm. What do you do? And what does it look like to trust God even when there's really nothing that you can do? Yeah, so if I could parent again, I would do everything I could to keep my kids from failure when they were young, to just teach them um, and to protect them. But when they started to come of age as teenagers, more and more I'd let them fail. And instead of rescuing them, protecting them. I mean, I even think about our own marriage. Our, our own marriage, like... Libby knows how many books we read on marriage before we got married. How many? <laughs> so, I don't know, probably 10. Wow, good for you. <laughs> Not from cover to cover, but well, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? And But what really taught us, taught me the most about marriage was failure. Failing as a husband, failure in our marriage. Failure is the great teacher. And there's nothing like failure in terms of its ability to teach. Now, I'm not encouraging failure right now, but we have to see what failure is and capitalize on it. And the only way you capitalize on it is by humbling yourself and repenting. It requires both those things. When you fail, do you have the capacity to humble yourself and admit that about yourself? Not blame others, not blame your circumstances, but to look at your choices, who you are, and you being the sole reason of why you are what you are and how you got to that spot. And then to be able to repent, like Abram, to just, all right, I am leaving Egypt. I am getting out of here. I'm getting my wife out of here. We are leaving this life, and we are returning with all our heart to God. Which, by the way, is a different picture of repentance. Repentance isn't feeling sorry for yourself. No. It's literally moving in the it, back. In the opposite in, direction. Draw, just yeah. drawing towards God, drawing away yeah. Yeah. from Egypt and drawing towards God's arms. It's the parable of the prodigal. And the fact that we can do this. And mm-hmm. what other religion or worldview treats failure this way? And all other worldviews, you fail. The result is devastation. With God, you fail, return to me, and I'll make you more. Your marriage failed, return to me, I'll make your marriage more. You're, you, you fail as a father, admit it. Yeah. Return to me, I'll make you more of a father. Admit it to your kids. I just did it this week a couple of times with my kids. Would you- Kate called me on the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> she literally called it's me good. on the carpet. It's and okay. in that moment, everything in me wanted to defend myself. But I just listened. I thought about it. 
Was she right? My heart said, Kate, you are 110% right. And I told her that. And I told oh. her, I'm very sorry. And then I looked to Libby and said, I'm very sorry for what I said and did. <laughs> and then I had to preach the next day and feel miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, two days later, I think it was on Friday of this. Week. No, I, t- I. You know how it is. So you bring all those um, things oh, in, yeah. in, up there, right? Well, f- oh, yeah. Uh, when we, the week that I was preaching on Babel, which is all about pride. First of all, I'm like, how do I even, I'm a proud man. How do I even preach on pride? But I had probably one of the, so I'm, you know, one of my prayers at the beginning of the week before I preach a text is just like, Lord, teach this to me in my own life. So he had some ways of humbling me and we had one of probably the most humbling conversations we've had in our marriage that week. And it was actually the, the greatest gift um, but I want to ask you the same question, Libby, when you think about encouraging, let's say a mom yeah. and they're looking at their wayward child and they just want to rescue them. What well, would you this say? Is not, this is not a good question for me because Rod knows I'm a, not as good at this as he is. Like I, everything in me wants to chase after, drag them back by their ear. I'm a huge rescuer, um, I'm a helper, like that's one of my big character traits, which can be really bad because you you kind of create a scenario in which your kids can't fail, or you try to. You create circumstances and prop things up. Um, but like Rod said, we've noticed with our kids, when they come of age, if you can say that's your choice and give them that power and then watch how they respond, knowing that you're not forcing something on them, but they're making it a choice, and then they're going to live in the consequences themselves. That's the best tool that you can give a young adult going into adulthood. Wouldn't you say, Rod, just to say, it's your choice, it's your choice, and let them make choices, own their choices, live in the consequences of their choices, whether that be good or bad. Because that's, like Rod said already, that's just how you learn. And it's almost like I loved what you just said, Rod. It's beautiful. It, almost like God doubles down on our, our failure. Like, a, I see your failure, and I'm going to just make that 10 times better if you just turn and repent. Exactly. And um, He turns the tables. It's just beautiful. Turns it on its head. Makes a bad thing a great thing. Exactly. It's unreal. <laughs> and the, and we should literally be laughing about this. It's hilarious. Yeah. And he gives us the opportunity to return. Yes. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things you didn't ma- mention about the story of the prodigal is the father doesn't chase him down. He doesn't. But no, the but moment you, you have that to remember, turns... the father is standing on the porch well, watching. Yeah. And so I think that's where a mom's heart is. Yeah. Like you want so bad to rescue, but you. I've heard it said before that the mom is only as happy as the least happy person in her family. Like a mom carries all that in her heart. So when you see a child... Um, that's making choices that you probably don't agree with or that you know is going to create baggage for them in the future or you know that's going to add to their destruction, then you are on that porch with your, like, eye intent on the horizon. It's very hard for moms to just then go about their life as normal because your heart is breaking and your heart is aching. So I just want to say that as a mom – when you're in those situations, your your best tool is prayer. Um, I can remember being late at night when K- 
kids weren't home at curfew time and not really knowing where they were. Oh, yeah. And just like being on my knees and just saying, God, wherever they are, just protect them. Sadly, what was I doing? Sleeping. <laughs> but that's Sounds the difference like... between a mom and a dad. Like your heart is just with those kids. You can't, you can't escape it. And I think we're going to see this actually in the story. Um, we can't go far ahead because we're going to get through the whole book of Genesis. But Abram never gives up on Lot. Um, mm. Abram actually doesn't give up on Sodom um, oh, because be Lot is there. And then Lot's going to get captured by a king, and Abram's going to travel hundreds of miles to rescue him and bring him back. Um, That's next so week. Abram's heart is um, very attached to Lot. I don't think it's easy yeah, that he no. lets Lot go. No. I think he is, you know, watching, like Rod yes. said, how far is he going to go. And if you know the geography of the land, Abram's definitely elevated. Like those cities of the plain are down in the valley. And so Abram can probably actually see see Lot and his tent that's pitched very close. And I think, he, I think Abram, knowing his heart and the story and his faithfulness, is probably that uncle on the porch just watching the horizon yeah that's his heart and i don't want to say i'm proud of the sleeping at night okay <laughs> because listen that's not the father on the porch waiting the father is not sleeping he's waiting <laughs> yes. i will say there's something biological though there's a i i can just sleep through the night and i'll wake up and mel will be like i'm like how'd you sleep you know she's like i was up three times with the girls and i was like oh, i didn't hear him but she's just got that mother's ear. She can hear any time they need anything. And Get your butt out of bed, okay? And <laughs> Scream I think, louder, but no, kids. I think, I think that's I'll something really valuable for women um, because God says in Genesis 1 that in the, in the image he made them male and female. So that part that's unique to women or with our children, with our loved ones, we just can't. It's very hard for us to let them go. Yeah, God's exposing that side of His heart as well in the yeah, in the totally. prodigal, the parable of the prodigal. Like He, He has that heart for us. And as a mom, when I think about how I have that heart for my children, it's overwhelming for me to think that God has that same kind of love for me. That He's He's not going to be content. He's watching. He's praying. Jesus is at the right hand, constantly praying for us. Like mm -hmm, He mm -hmm. doesn't sleep. The Bible said God says God doesn't sleep at all. He lives to intercede um, for us. Well, and he doesn't he doesn't sleep. I mean, the Bible tells us that he doesn't he neither slumbers nor sleeps. So he's constantly watching and waiting for us. And this applies picture. to more than just kids. It applies to parents, prodigal parents, friends, yeah, siblings, people that we love. Anyone your heart is attached to. It's mm. spouses. It's meant to be that way. Yeah. And I also want to encourage people, too, that you you aren't doing them any favors, too. Let's say this is specifically talking about them coming back to the Lord. You don't need to water down who God is and what he requires of us in faith, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded of the situation in John chapter 6 where Jesus just gets done talking about himself as the bread of life, and he says, some really difficult sayings. He says, you know, you got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. I am mm -hmm. what's going to sustain you. I am the life. Mm -hmm. And it says that many of the 72 said, this is too difficult. I can't handle this. And they walked away. And you think in that moment that Jesus is going to turn and run after those people. 
But instead, he turns to the to the disciples and he says, "Do any of you guys want to go too? Yeah, is this too hard for you?" And what does Peter respond? He's like, "Where would we go? Oh, you yeah, have the words of eternal life." Yes, and I, I just I I like that passage because I think sometimes we forget that we do have to choose life. Yes, in Him. Amen, and that. <laughs> Ultimately, you cannot control the actions and the choices of those that you most love. At the end of the day, they have to make that choice for themselves. So Jesus lets the whole masses go right there. Yeah. Hey. And he doesn't like go chasing after them. And even with his disciples, what's your choice? He puts the ball right in their court. And Peter, of course, rises up. Jesus, we're (laughs) choosing you. Are you kidding me? So... And then Jesus replies, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is the devil? He's talking about (laughs) Judas. And he even reintroduces the fact that Judas is choosing him now. Essentially, he's combined with the rest of the 12 who don't desert him. But like, we live in a constant opportunity to choose or not choose life. Yep. And there are consequences oftentimes when I talk about uh, just sin with people, I remind them. God's grace and his mercy is new every day, but there are still earthly consequences to our sin. And that's kind of what's going on here with Lot and Abram, because another thing that I wanted to bring up about Abram and Lot is they're both righteous man. men. This might be shocking to you, but 2 Peter 2.7 actually says that Lot is a righteous man. So that was messing with me as I was studying Lot. How, so he's a righteous man, but he chooses to go to Sodom? And it just, for me, it exemplifies the fact that we can live seasons of righteousness in our lives and still make a choice that leads to utter destruction. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was reading some of the Jewish what do they think? commentaries on this. And one of the questions that they ask about Lot is, is Lot saved? And most of them say no. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not going to sit here and say that they're right. And I don't know Peter's, where. No, I, I don't I mean, know where. We, Again, it's one line in a letter from Peter, and but I just it's yeah. been messing with me. I mean, God's word gets the last say in it. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, right. Well, I think that you, Trey, what you're saying is that um, people are on a journey, and Lot actually. I mean, we're getting way ahead in the story, but when the angel, when Abram fights for the righteous in Sodom, and then the angels come to Sodom and they rescue Lot. And then Lot and his two daughters and his wife flee from Sodom because they hear the word of the Lord through these angels. But what you're saying, Trig, is that even if you are counted among the righteous, meaning you have been saved through faith, there's still earthly consequences to your choices. Exactly. And we see Lot's at the end of his life. Again, we're jumping way ahead, but he's going to be in a cave. Yeah, but he's called out of Sodom. God calls him out of Sodom. He's called out. God spares him. I mean, Lot. Exactly. Do you want yes. to hear how, this is actually really cool how Peter, Peter, I'm just going to read this because this is how Peter describes that situation. He says, if he, God, or Noah, preacher of righteousness and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, in quotations, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds 
he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh and despise authority. That text says Lot is actually tormented by his experience in Sodom. Well, he has to be because we know how wicked that city is and it involved his daughters. They're, yeah. We're going to get to the story. Human, yeah. They're going to come knocking on his door when those strangers show up and they're going to want to fornicate with those strangers. Mm-hmm. And Lot says, have my daughters. I don't even want to talk about this, it's in, but it's in our Bibles. But it's hard for me to reconcile that Lot is a righteous man with him sacrificing no. his daughters in that way. I know. This is why I'm like, I read yeah. this text. I'm like, what's going on here? I, and this is where I think it's okay to wrestle. I don't have the answer. Well, I but... think you can be counted among the righteous and still be making mistakes. I mean, I think that's what you've been saying, Trig, is that God's grace and mercy is new every morning. And Lot never gets to live in the presence of God, maybe like Abram did, because of where he's, because of his choices. But in the end, if the Bible in Peter says that he is counted among the righteous, then for some reason, God rescued him. But from an earthly perspective, we still see his life is in shambles. Oh, exactly. His heavenly status might be one thing, but his earthly experience and life of torment and shambles is something that he's had to endure because of his choices. Is that wrong? No. I actually, this is what I think about Lot, if you want to know. I, I actually think he's a good person. I think he's so infected with Egypt. He can't see it. And he's so naive. Yes. He is so naive to the potency Mm. of Egypt and how quickly it can eat up and chew up and destroy a life. And I think he goes into Egypt in a very naive way. And then I think he's, I'm sorry, into Sodom in a naive way. And I think he is even, you know, it's the frog in the kettle. It it, it doesn't happen automatically. The first day, it's like the water slowly gets turned up to the point where he can't even realize how much like Sodom he has become. Exactly, And that's what I actually read in that Peter text is like, I think there's probably a time where a lot goes, what have I done? Mm -hmm. Where has my life gone? And I'm seeing, please, I know I've been there in my life after walking with the Lord where I wander and then all of a sudden I'm like... I'm distressed at that one step that turns into three steps that turns into a mile. Then it's 10 miles and you find yourself in Sodom and you've got to return. And I'm seeing I all over our prayer wall are just people crying out because they're finding themselves in Sodom right now. Mm. And I want to read this quote speaking about what we just said. Our favorite, Kent Hughes says, Lot was the kind of man who would certainly choose heaven over hell if given the choice but not heaven over earth. Material prosperity was the bottom line. Wow. That's good. It's really good. <laughs> and so I think that that's also a great just pick word picture for us as Christians. We may choose heaven over hell, but we, do we choose heaven over earth? So mm. good. Mm-hmm. That's the question we got to wrestle with. And I think that's the question of 
That's the contrast here in the story between Abram and Lot. It's Abram's trusting the promise and Lot saying, I want the earthly stuff. And so there's an eternal perspective to this. Definitely. And I think that's also now going back to John 6, the, the, the perspective of Peter. But Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Mm-hmm. He's got the eternal perspective. He's saying, I know that right now this looks difficult. Mm-hmm. And Peter's going to fail again. Which brings us back to this, just this beautiful wrestling of faith that we have. He's on his journey. Yeah. And God's going to use that failure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I just want to encourage people, like if you're listening and you're steeped in Sodom right now, you can walk out. The door's open. You You don't don't have to stay there. Or even if you're someone who's tempted by Sodom, you can stay right where you are and trust in the promises of God like Abram did even though it might feel like a wilderness or it might feel like a barren land and it looks so easy to go to Sodom, you can follow in Abram's paths and just look to God's word and continue to live according to his promises. I'll be with you. Another way in which Lot's life gets so off track and it never recovers. Never. It never really recovers. Unlike Abram's, he's not in a community. He's all by himself. We need each other, mm-hmm. especially in our failures. We need to be able to talk about our failures. We need to be able to share our failures. And we need to do that amongst righteous people because righteous mm-hmm. people have a way about them of bringing both truth and grace and grace and truth. Yeah. And I think that's what, I mean, in studying the text from a Hebraic perspective, Rod and I have seen that one of, they see one of Lot's biggest problems is that he left the godly community that he had around him to go by himself to live near and then eventually in Sodom. Like, why would you ever leave the people of God, the land of God, because you're tempted by something else? And that actually becomes his downfall. He's not surrounded by a group of people that are living and believing the same things he is. I mean, it's almost like, okay, this is going to be bad, Rod. But it's almost like we're going back to the Michigan Wolverines. It's like that team is a team because they are a team, because they're together. And they're Mm -hmm. prospering because they're together, because they believe in the same things. It's almost like one of those members leaving and going to another team. You can't take the culture of the Michigan team alone to another team. See what I'm saying? Like you have to have that whole culture surrounding you. And that is what, in the Jewish mind, is Lot's first mistake is that he departs on his on his own because they know you can't do it on your own. Yeah, and <laughs> I'm just floored with the grace of God over Abram's life 13 chapters in. Like, Well, can I just say this? Yeah, please do. Floored by the other side of the story and that God himself never gives up on Lot through Abram. Yeah. Pursuing him, but then God sending those angels to rescue him. Like, God doesn't give up on Lot. Like, God still sees Lot where he is, and he's constant. He's that, he is that father on the porch that just wants him to, he's constantly open armed, constantly wanting him to come back. And unfortunately, like Rod said, Lot's life never actually recovers from his bad choices, but God still loves him. God's still pursuing him to the very end. And once you leave and once you're rescued, you don't turn around and look back at Sodom. Mm -hmm. We learned that too. Mm -hmm. 
Like, you don't have to go back there. Abram never goes back to Egypt. Yeah, and we should find great hope in that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But I interesting that God says, and I think you brought this up in your sermon, like, don't look back at Sodom when this whole thing is brought on by the eyes, like you said, the looking at Sodom and how beautiful it looks. And then he's like, just depart and don't look at that. And I think sometimes if we can say this, that our eyes see the things of Egypt or Sodom and we're tempted by them, but how much more we should be looking at the things of God. And that that hymn you quoted, Rod, when you turn your eyes on Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but we spend so much time actually looking at the things of the world, um, and that creates an appetite that isn't easily fulfilled when we should spend more time looking at the things of the Lord and keeping our eyes focused on him and his promises. It's almost like a master class on how to become an addict. Isolate from God, yep. be individual, and look at it until you can't help yourself. Yeah, Lot is a rugged individualist. Yeah. He is. He is. <laughs> and it, it, it's actually the pathway of an addict. Yeah. Starts with the eyes, then you start getting closer, you start dabbling, but you think you're good enough to stay away. You have enough willpower. It's not going to suck me in. On your righteousness. You, you don't respect what you're dabbling in enough. You think it's just, you know, something pretty small and tame. And then it just keeps drawing you in and drawing you in. And then you're all the way in and it eats you for lunch. And this is why Sodom and Egypt are one and the same. Egypt in the Bible is the Hebrew word Mitzrayim, which means to be a slave. It's the house of bondage. And Moses well knows that. And that's why he's calling it this. Like Moses is writing this. He's coming out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He's just rescued all these slaves out of Egypt to give them a new identity in the wilderness, in the desert. And he's saying Lot doesn't understand his identity. He wants to go back to Egypt. And he's forsaking the identity of the wilderness, the identity of being the people of God. That's I'm overlaying Moses as the author, what he's kind of hinting at here when he says it looks like Egypt. Yeah. And interestingly enough, Egypt that actually does look like Eden, it's deceiving, but it's not Eden because God's not there. And Satan loves to just twist what looks good, just like he did with Eve in the garden. That apple looked good, but God's not there. And that's the temptation of prosperity. It's building, our hearts are actually, it's just a, a slight shift from what our hearts are actually designed for. We think we can build, our hearts are made for Eden, so we try to build Eden on this side of eternity. And we do that as individuals for our own name, for our own comfort, and that's where it turns into Egypt. I know, and just going back to Eve, like in that moment, the eyes... It kicks in the epithemia, those passions, they're aroused. What she needed in that moment was her husband, who was right, standing right next to her, to come alongside of her and say, Eve, no, 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 don't, don't. You know, we know this is not good for us. God said it. Again, the community. We need yeah. each other. Yeah. Eve needed Adam. If we're alone, it's game over or yeah. if we're with people 
that don't have the guts, the love to be like, don't touch that. Yeah. So don't hear what we said earlier too. I just, for those listening, like when we're saying like, you can't necessarily always rescue people. We're not saying do not warn them, do not speak God's word over them, do not pray for them. We're just saying ultimately you can do all of those things and they are still going to make their choices. Yes. Lot ha- had an opportunity to stay in promised land. Yep. He was already a part of the Bedav of Abram and he still chose to leave. And at that point, you got to trust the Lord. Yeah. And uh, that's a really hard place it's really easy to say that in theory. It's also, but it's a really hard thing to, to live out in practice. Um, so what I pray for our church, yeah, is that God would open the eyes of our heart to see the Egypts in our lives, or the fires that we're playing with, or the Sodoms that we're getting too close to, or maybe some of us are already inhabiting. And that He would give us the courage and the strength and the grace to, to turn to lay it down, to run, to flee, and to return to the arms of God. And then let me also add to that, that if Peter is correct about Lot, that even if you find yourself in the midst of a destructive failure in your life and you think that there is no hope, there is still hope. And do not let the lie of the enemy to create hopelessness in your life be the reason that you don't do not turn turn from that sin so the worst sinners and when i mean worst i mean that in a worldly human, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah worldly sense yeah when they turn when god gets a hold of their heart become the best for lack of a better word the best yeah. christ followers if you've been forgiven much jesus <laughs> said it that exactly. way exactly i've not come yes for the healthy, I know, but for the sick, and the sinner, and then it's not in spite of our past, our failures. It's because of our failures that we love Him so much. Yeah, and, and that He can use us in those failures. I've seen that too over and over again. Yeah, and I can just speak from personal experience. Literally last week, I mean, if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, we talk about pornography, and one of the things that I revealed in that was just my own struggle with being in Sodom and living in addiction prior to following Jesus, and then for a little bit after um, following Jesus. And it's amazing how, from the time we recorded that to the time we posted it, I just everything in me, the temptation was, I can't have that out there. I can't have that out there. I can't have that out there. And the Lord just gently reminding me, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that's actually now part of my testimony. But, yeah. but everything in my flesh wants to be humiliated. Right. You know, wants to not stand on God's faithfulness and grace over my life. So the healing that God promises comes if my people humble themselves and repent. God then says, I'll heal them. Um people who can't talk about it so i'm encouraging you right now no, Trey, the people that can't talk about it i sometimes wonder are you really healed and the it could be a, a lot of different things it, it could be um i embezzled a bunch of money or i cheated on my wife or my marriage went to a bad place or i was an abusive father or mother or okay it can be all kinds of things people that 
say they've been forgiven but can't talk about it, I still wonder if they've really been healed. The fact that you can talk about it in this venue, it's just a testimony that you've experienced the healing of Christ. Well, I received that. And I just, the, the encouragement in that too is that you're still going to have, that you may be walking in freedom and be okay with sharing it. And the enemy still doesn't want you to oh, talk about that. He's called the accuser for a reason. Exactly. He is going to come right into that exactly. ear and start talking. You suck. You're a loser. Why did you say that? Exactly. Shame on you. <laughs> exactly. And that, so I just wanted to share that because uh, Quinn, <laughs> Quinn, I was texting you yeah. literally like, dude, I don't, I don't know if we should post this episode. Like, mm -hmm. and then it was unbelievable. I mean, can I just, should I read that text message that I got? Yeah, definitely. So we post it. I know this is just my story, but I think it's, it's, it's a good thing to talk about because I know a lot of people feel so much shame about their past. And then when you step out in freedom, when you've been freed from that sin, and like you said, there's great power in that. And one of my football teammates who I didn't even know listens to the podcast ended up texting me and just saying, thank you so much for all of our thoughts, not just mine, but you, you three as well. And he just said, I need to confess to my best friends and ask for prayer confessed for lust and gluttonous behavior that was encapsulating me most of November and December, prayer to be disciplined in mind and action, prayer to love my wife well and to cherish the beautiful person she is. He's already working in my life, which I'm so thankful for, but pray that I would remember God's immense blessings on my life, the first of which is his love for me, and not be so easily entranced by filth and easily discouraged by my own depravity. Amen. And I'm just like... Amen. Yes. So thank you for that uh, encouragement. Um, but God is so good. Amen. He is so good. And I want to say, too, that I was listening to um, one of my favorite people this week, Jill Briscoe. She's one of the heroes of the faith to me. And she wrote this poem. And I was looking for it um, to bring it today. But I, I can't find it because I was listening to it over a podcast. So I... I couldn't find it written out, and it's it's kind of long, but she's got this great way of talking about Eden and about God in Eden, and she says, Jill, God's talking to her, Jill, there's no small apples. I mean, she would just say, like, I got, I just took the, the tiniest little apple off that tree and ate it, and then God's voice coming back to her and saying, but Jill, there's no small apples. All the apples coming off that tree that we're not supposed to eat from whether they're big or small, they still have the same consequence. Like there is no huge sins and small sins. The moment any size apple was taken off that tree and bitten, the fall happened. And so for some of us who think, well, I don't have this massive addiction or I'm not, we still have so, like you said, Rod, in your sermon, like maybe it's gossip, maybe it's something smaller. Like there's no small apples. It's all the same consequence. It's all sin. And so every single one of us should be able to say, like, without the grace of God, without his hand on my heart and my life, I'm prone to Egypt, even if it's in something that's not so obvious, and take that opportunity to just repent because God's waiting. He's there. Exactly. He loves us so much. And the moment you think you're safe from the enemy's temptation is actually when you're in the greatest danger. <laughs> yep. mm -hmm. The moment you get too comfortable with being like, I'm good. Yeah, exactly. I think Tim Keller's 
famous, famous statement that sums up the gospel. I am more sinful than Mm. I could ever imagine myself to be. And yet I am that much more loved than I could ever dream. That combination is life-changing. It sets us free to actually look at our depravity and be honest about it Mm -hmm. and return to God and experience his amazing love. He knows us to the bottom, yet he loves us uh, to the skies, as Tim Keller says. And, And then we don't live as depraved people. We live as loved people. We're loved, and that's how we live. The gospel. Let's go. And that's why a guy like Peter yes, can fail the way he fails. And he's still loved by our Lord after the resurrection and then after Jesus ascends. He's still there. And you know what? On his journey, he's going to fail again. He's going to stop eating with <laughs> yes. the Gentiles. And he's going to get corrected. Yep. And he's going to get back on God's path which is the beauty of repentance, which is where you ended your sermon, which is that repentance is the opportunity to just turn back to God and he will turn. He's always there, actually. He hasn't turned his face. He's standing there just like the father on the porch or the mom waiting for their kid to come home at 2 a.m. Just waiting. I love you. Amen. Well, I'm grateful for... uh, you too, Rod and Libby, and you, Quinn. And uh, before before we totally go, I wanted to bring up a challenging question, maybe to what what you said yeah. earlier. Um, you brought up the like bringing community alone, like the I think you used the trade illustration or somebody leaving Michigan to bring Michigan right. community. What's the difference between that and like the apostles going to other places and trying to bring Christianity and you know the truth of Jesus? What's the difference? I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. No, no, I no did. that's a good question. I addressed go it on ahead. Sunday a little bit, didn't yeah. I? I don't know. The fact that we are called to go to pagan places like Sodom. Yeah. Is that the question? The question yeah, yeah, yeah. is, right. we were well, getting to the... He was saying they went alone. Like Peter went out alone and... Actually, they never did go alone. They never that's went what I'm alone. saying. Did, yeah. was, it, was, it was always, we're bringing... Jesus created many? a Badov, a family. And then he raised them up and sent them out. Now, it's not like his whole Beidav went all together. Actually, they did start all together in Jerusalem. But then yeah. they were broken up, but then they didn't go out alone. They went out together, okay. smaller groupings. Is it like groups of four or like three and five? Or what was their sweet spot, do you think? I'm just curious if you have a thought on it. Earlier in the text, it says that he sent them out two by two. In different, in a different instance, he sent them two together. So I think he sent at least two. But then also sometimes the places where they were going already had a community of believers, like a synagogue. It says they first, like Paul, always first goes to the synagogue, to his people, and then preaches the gospel there. A synagogue is a minyan. Hmm. A synagogue is not a building. A synagogue is a gathering. Mm -hmm. A gathering of 10 people. That's a minyan. A minyan is 10. They yes. have to, in order to have a synagogue meeting, they have to have 10. Yes. So anything less than 10 doesn't count. Okay. So they believe in community so strongly. Like you can't study yeah. the Bible without 10 people. You can't, everything happens in, in fact, community. In this is all rooted in the story of Sodom. Okay. 
when Abram is making his case mm-hmm. to God to not destroy Sodom. Yep. He, yeah, he's 40. He's 30, 30, 30, 50, 20, 10, yeah, 30, 10, 20. Yeah, yeah, what about yeah. 10? And then he, he stops, stops at 10. He goes home. <laughs> you know, and it's Yeah, real. why did he go to five? There you go. There's yes. your answer. Yeah. Well, then that's where the Jewish people get the idea of 10. Like Abraham expects in order for there to be a viable community, it has to be at least 10 people. Or for God not to send his ju- judgment, honestly, like Sodom. There mm-hmm. needs to be a church, a synagogue of 10 people there. Yeah, and he'll use discomfort and persecution to get his church out. I mean, that's what happens in Jerusalem. What's the most? Why? What's the most extreme example in the Bible of someone going in like as like stakes against them type of thing? And we can just, just read Acts. Acts. <laughs> just just read the book of Acts, and you'll see. There's some very very worldly cities filled with sexual immorality idolatry the big ones in the new testament would be corinth they even had the the a corinthian girl was considered to be a harlot a prostitute um rome of course the disciples are targeting all of these cities that's why we have letters called Mm -hmm. corinthians Mm -hmm. ephesians romans romans um they're going to the most godless, debased places on on the face of the earth. Well, it's interesting when Paul gets to Athens, when he's preaching, it says he gets depressed because he's walking around and there's like nobody. That there's so many temples and gods and everybody's lost. And his own human psyche, he just gets depressed because there's no light in Athens. And he, he leaves. He gives one great sermon and then he just leaves. He's like, there's nothing here. You should, I should take you to Turkey. Go to Turkey. Yes, you'll, this is what the whole story is. Your question is like what, the, what, what we go to Turkey to answer that question. Yeah, yes, please. Yes, for, for sure. <laughs> I don't need to be told to go to Turkey twice. <laughs> I love Turkey. Let's talk Turkey. Turkey's actually the, uh, the birthplace of symbols for drumming. Oh. Like really, symbols is where, yeah, that's where the Zildjian symbol. That's a symbol smith or symbol maker is the official translation, I think. But yeah, Istanbul wow. is like huge. Symbols we use them down there are made in Istanbul. Yeah, they're, the the label is Istanbul. Does that date way back into its history, or is it just more like modern history that Istanbul as a city is? Oh, it's it's yeah. ancient. They're, I mean, they're. I think that they are. I like to think that they even get, there's like the part in Zilla, I think in Genesis where it says like Zilla Chin and it's like yeah. metal smith or something. So you're something. already getting like the, yeah. the, 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 where, or, the it's origins. The, the silo of, yeah. We got some bonus music nerd content. Yeah, no, no, we don't, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so Lord, we just ask yeah. that you would bless this time. And they continue to bless this podcast, not for our glory, but for your glory. And we pray for those that find themselves in bondage in Egypt or Sodom, um, that you would free them and they would walk into your marvelous light. Lord, we're reminded that our eye is the lamp to our body. When it's dark, our whole body's filled with darkness. But when it's filled with light, our whole life is filled with light. Lord, I also pray for those that have pitched their tent just a stone's throw away from Sodom. Maybe it's us at this table 
that we would not dabble with the things of this world, but that we would live into your plans for our life, that we would cling to your promises and we would trust them and live as if they're actually true. So Lord, be our firm foundation. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is the locker room where we break down sermon stories and scripture for the race of our faith. Hit follow on the notification bell if you want to stay up to date and uh, we'll keep coming to you with what God's doing at this church. We're excited to keep chugging along in 2024 and we've got some exciting special guests coming up too. So, Yeah, we do. All right. Have a great week.